Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Okay, so um, I'm outside a polling location in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. The voting is happening inside the Toyota Sportsplex, uh, which is where the Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins practice, as was explained to me. These past few months, I've been living not too far from Northeast Pennsylvania coal country. Pretty nice day, actually. Donald Trump won Pennsylvania narrowly four years ago, thanks in part to voters right here. Joe Biden's hometown of Scranton is close by. Trump and Biden both campaigned in the area. And in September, the Department of Justice started investigating a small number of discarded ballots here in Luzerne County. So on the last day of voting, that's where I was, with an extra-long mic holder. I spoke with Biden supporters and Trump supporters. Oh, it was very easy. easy. It always is when I come here. How confident are you your vote will be counted? Oh, I'm very confident. The, yeah. way, the way they did it, the system has changed, so I see that they put it, actually paper through the machine so you can actually see your vote going through. I think I saw you guys go in like five minutes ago, so it seems like that was pretty quick. Yeah. Here it's going pretty smooth right now today so far been out sooner, but I had to do a provisional vote because they sent me in a mail-in ballot. So yep. we would have been out, I don't I know. Mean, yeah. And why did you out. decide to do the in-person voting versus mail or drop-off? Just because of everything going on and all the lost votes and not trusting everything. Yeah, I can't trust them that way. I've been doing this, coming and voting since I've been 18. I've only missed one election. I don't miss them. I come down every time. Uh, Are you confident that your vote will be counted this time? Absolutely. Yes. Whoever they were supporting, the voters I met were following the news, and they were confident their ballots would be counted, like Megan. I'm like 100% sure. I I would hope that my vote would be counted, um, especially with what happened a few weeks ago in Luzerne County, where six ballots were thrown out. Um, I hope that they've learned from it. I believe that... This area will decide. Um, we did four years ago. What was it? 44,000 votes decided four years ago. So I think every vote counts, uh, Republican or Democrat, every vote counts. And in the end, it was Pennsylvania, by a narrow but decisive margin, that gave Joe Biden the votes he needed to win the presidency. All this year, we've been thinking about what can go wrong. Foreign interference, voter intimidation, violence and unrest, disinformation promoted by the president. Well, people mailed in their ballots, or dropped off their ballots, or showed up at the polls. They smashed century-old records for voter turnout, mostly without any problem at all. Guys, this is fraud. This is absolute fraud. We've seen it in Philadelphia before. They're trying to make a mockery of the election of this country. Two days after the election, the president's son, Eric Trump, showed up in center city, Philadelphia. My father is up by almost half a million votes in this state with 86%. Eric Trump has been running the Trump organization while also working on his dad's campaign. This is rampant corruption. And it can't happen. It simply can't happen. It's not fair. This is Eric Trump turned the mic over to Rudy Giuliani. Thank you very much, Eric. He was accompanied by Trump's fired 2016 campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, former Florida attorney general and Trump loyalist Pam Bondi, and former New York representative John Sweeney, who spent 
much of Trump's term in office working as a lobbyist for a state-owned Russian bank. All of them were helming Trump's legal efforts, they said. Giuliani made a bunch of claims without evidence. They could be from Mars as far as we're concerned. Or they could be from the Democratic National Committee. Joe Biden could have voted 50 times as far as we know, or 5,000 times. The ballots could be from Camden. A few days later, Rudy was back in Philadelphia in a parking lot on the edge of town. Wow, what a beautiful day. Thank you. In front of Four Seasons Total Landscaping, next to an adult bookstore. On behalf of the Trump campaign... This time, Giuliani showed up with, among others, the former New York City Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick, who'd been convicted and imprisoned for corruption before Trump pardoned him. When Giuliani stopped to take questions, a reporter asked about what had just happened. The networks had called the election for Joe Biden. The poll? Because they don't decide the election. The call for Joe Biden isn't... Is it? Who was it called by? All the, oh my goodness, all the networks. Wow. He raised his arms to the side. All the networks. Then to his front and looked up as if praying. We have to forget about the law. Judges don't count. Come on, don't be, don't be ridiculous. Networks don't get to decide elections. Courts do. Welcome to Trump Inc., a podcast on the business of Trump. I'm Andrea Bernstein. I'm Ilya Meritz. Trump, as you know, has been defeated. News outlets have turned their spotlights on his successor, Joe Biden. But Trump is still being Trump. Today on the show, we're beginning to look at what Trump is doing in the waning days of his presidency to hold on to power, enhance his interests, and thwart his successor. He's using the tools he's always used, aggressive legal tactics, ignoring norms, protocols, and laws, and taking full advantage of the power to fire people. Today, we look at all three. After news networks called the election for Joe Biden, Trump put out a statement. Beginning Monday, it read, our campaign will start prosecuting our case in court. Trump Inc. reporter Meg Kramer. Echoing Rudy Giuliani's comment that courts decide elections. Courts do. Trump claimed that his campaign had, quote, valid and legitimate legal challenges that could determine the ultimate victor. This statement felt very familiar to us over here at Trump Inc. because it fits into a pattern of longtime legal strategies that began at the Trump Organization and continued into the Trump White House. One of those strategies is stalling. When investigators subpoenaed President Trump's accountants seeking his tax returns, Trump sued to stop them. He didn't win his lawsuit, but he appealed again and again, essentially running out the clock. Another tactic Trump uses is bullying his opponents with extraordinary lawsuits, like filing a $5 billion defamation suit against the journalist Tim O'Brien, who had written that Trump was not a billionaire. Trump lost in court, but claimed a different kind of victory. He told the Washington Post, I did it to make his life miserable, which I'm happy about. Sometimes a lawsuit serves as a kind of negotiating tactic. In 2008, a loan with Deutsche Bank was coming due on Trump's Chicago Tower. When Trump defaulted on the loan, he sued Deutsche Bank, 
claiming $3 billion in damages. He blamed the bank for its role in the 2008 financial crisis. They settled out of court. A few years later, Trump paid back the rest of his loan with money he borrowed from another division within Deutsche Bank. In Trump's world, going to court is a way to demand the impossible and settle for an advantage. So it isn't surprising that after the election, Trump's campaign started taking legal action in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Arizona. These cases have been uniformly booted from court, often with very stinging words from the presiding judge. Adam Klasfeld is a reporter and editor for Law and Crime News. His Twitter feed reads like a play-by-play of every campaign lawsuit happening across the country. You mentioned the Georgia case, for example. The Georgia judge, basically, after hearing an entire dearth of evidence over an issue of late ballot counting, he dismissed the case in a sentence and issued a written ruling explicitly saying there was no evidence. There was another case in Michigan, you mentioned, would say, Your Honor, in terms of the hearsay, where you had a judge uh, I absolutely understand that it's basically exclaim, come on now, to the Trump campaign's lawyer because the evidence that they were offering was this. You had a poll worker who signed an affidavit that she heard an unidentified person tell her that someone else told her there was some vague impropriety. And she has made that statement based on her own firsthand physical evidence and knowledge. I heard somebody else say something. Tell me why that's not hearsay. Come on now. The judge said that was double hearsay. Case dismissed. The list goes on and on. In Nevada, there was a case where there was a claim of voter disenfranchisement of an elderly woman uh, named Jill Stokey. The campaign wasn't named as a party in this lawsuit. But the same day it was filed, Stokey spoke at a Trump campaign press conference where she claimed her vote was stolen. Well, people examined the claims and election authorities say that they told her that she could vote with a provisional ballot and if she alleges some sort of impropriety, she can attest to that. She declined to do so. That case was thrown out too. You know, I've covered the courts for about a decade, and these lawsuits are being filed and then dispatched and dismissed in record time because judges are seeing the evidence and finding it utterly lacking. And it goes to the kind of broader issue of a claim of voter fraud, which most independent experts have long found to be a myth in the United States. Does the campaign have a legal strategy, as far as you can tell? If there is one, it's very difficult to discern, (laughs) And and I have asked for legal experts to chime in on that. But By and large, you know, they see this as a a PR move so far. Over the last four years, you have followed a number of Trump legal cases as they've made their way through the courts, including Trump's efforts to keep investigators from seeing his taxes. What do you make of this new batch of lawsuits, these post-election lawsuits, and how do they fit into your understanding of Trump's overall legal strategy? Well, a lot of that has been a continuity, I would say, in the sense that there is a strategy 
of going very big, making a sweeping legal claim, whether it's alleging a rather vague and inchoate voter fraud or whether it's alleging that you are absolutely immune from criminal investigation, even as one of his attorneys argued, if he actually shot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue, there are no modest legal arguments from the Trump White House. And in that, we are seeing a continuation not only from him, but from local GOP aligned with him throughout the country. Reporter Adam Klasfeld. The Trump campaign did not comment for this story. Here's the thing about Trump's legal strategy. It tends to work best when Trump has an edge over his opponent. More money, more power, or something to withhold. That's not really the case here. And it's much harder to contest an election than it is to appeal a failed lawsuit. Overturned elections are extremely rare. This is one instance where Trump's tactics of delay and distract face unusually long odds. Trump Inc. reporter Meg Kramer. We'll be right back. We're back. We've been looking at Trump's lawyers' efforts to impede the transition of power, working the courts from outside government. Now, what Trump can do as president to body block the incoming Biden administration. In the days after the election, President Trump fired a deputy administrator for foreign aid, demoted the chair of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and demanded the resignation of the woman who was charged with safeguarding America's nuclear weapons. This was just a warm-up for what came next, firing Defense Secretary Mark Esper and shaking up the upper ranks of the Defense Department, provoking the resignation of the Justice Department Elections Crimes Chief, removing the scientist in charge of assessing climate change. More personnel moves are coming every day. At the same time, it became clear that no one in Trump's government was to acknowledge his loss— down to officials like the General Services Administrator. In order for the Biden-Harris transition to gain access to resources like offices and security clearances, the administrator, Emily Murphy, had to sign a letter of authorization. She would not do so because, the GSA said, an ascertainment had not yet been made. Under Murphy, the GSA has done the things Trump wanted— It allowed him to continue his lease at the old post office for his Washington hotel, a decision the GSA inspector general later found improper and characterized by serious shortcomings. Then there was the time Murphy told Congress she had not discussed with the White House the sale of the FBI building, which could have become a rival hotel. Turned out she had, but maintained the decision not to sell the building was made by the FBI. The GSA is in charge of real estate, buildings, office space, money. Trump understands how to use that to his personal advantage. As with everything else, Trump, a sharp contrast from what came before. Four years ago, as the transition to the Trump presidency was set in motion, the GSA administrator was Denise Turner Roth, an Obama appointee. 
What makes somebody want to be the GSA administrator? Um, being a government wonk. I was a city manager, actually, and, and my career has been in city operations and government. And the role of GSA is very much government operations, um, in the pinnacle of government operations. That includes operations as government is handed off from one president to another. It was Turner Roth's job to lead that, whatever the outcome of the 2016 election. Well, I, I would say that personally, the election turned out in a way that was unexpected. Um, and I think that we've had a lot of discussion about polling these days um, that definitely played out in 2016. The election was called in the wee hours of the morning. Hillary Clinton quickly conceded. President Obama instructed a sometimes tearful staff to cooperate in the transition. So it was probably the following morning around 10 a.m. or so. Um, it's my recollection that we actually signed the letter um, that made for the official transition. Obviously, everybody understood in 2016 that Trump was going to be a big, big departure from Barack Obama. Can you just talk a little bit about what that was like on a sort of personal level, like going through with that? So from a personal standpoint, it was important for me to separate my emotions from the duties of the job. Um, GSA is in a unique position to lead transition and to take on um, the steps to ensure that the government uh, has a smooth handoff. And that was uh, significant for me and important to me to do my best in showing up there. So given that, how do you process what is going on now where Trump is saying, I'm not leaving and signaling to the people that he's appointed that they shouldn't do anything that indicates that he is? There is a lot that Emily Murphy is having to weigh right now, and she, is, I'm sure, is getting uh, very good advice from career employees and general counsels around her in terms of what are the right next steps. Um, at the end of the day, the GSA has a responsibility for the smooth transition of government, and I'm sure she is weighing those concepts of how do I make sure that the government transitions in a way that uh, doesn't hinder those who have to take these steps next, and the real question here becomes, is there an apparent win? This has been the norm in all modern transitions, Democrat to Republican or vice versa. There are people who live for these 70 or so days between presidential administrations. Robert Shea is one of them. How did you get to be a transition team type of person? That's a, I noticed a little chuckle in the question, uh, which makes perfect sense because, you know, this is a, an area of expertise that's utilized only for a few days every four years. Shea's day job is working for the business advisory firm Grant Thornton. He's a former top official in the Office of Management and Budget under President George W. Bush. And nearly every four years, he's worked for Republicans on presidential transitions, including, in 2008, Bush to Obama. One of the things that I've understood from talking to people over the years who've been involved in these processes that, I mean, you know, presidents and, you know, giving everybody the benefit of the doubt sort of up to now have, have more or less, you know, sort of wanted to protect the institutions of U.S. government in, in handing over the government to their successor. Uh, but at the same time, presidents always do things to do whatever they can to solidify their legacy, is that right? 
Absolutely right. So how did that play um, out in, in the in the you know sort of two thousand eight beginning of two thousand nine? Well, it played out in a number of ways. Presidents are elected for four years terms, and those go all the way through the middle of the day on January twentieth. So they've got authorities they can exercise. They've got regulatory authority. They've got pardon authority. They've got executive order authority. Now, there's a term that I've heard bandied about <laughs> reporting on transition, which was a new-to-me term, burrowing, a, a way to keep senior-level employees, sort of put them from political jobs into civil service jobs. Is that something that's familiar to you, burrowing? It is. It's forbidden. Inappropriate burrowing, that is. You know, civil servants are employed by the federal government through a competitive process. And those who circumvent those processes by converting a political position to a career one or putting a political person into a career person after having gone around those processes is illegal. So, I mean, did people try to do that as President Bush was leaving? Um, yes. I mean, there was no plan to do that, but... A federal civil service job is an attractive one, so I'm certain there were cases where a political person tried to get a a civilian position inappropriately. I don't know of a specific case. I'm just saying that the chances are that happened. So I think it's already pretty clear this is not going to be a <laughs> anything like the transitions that we've seen in in modern history, and and maybe you know, almost in the entire history of the Republic. We've seen the president, we saw his executive order that he signed shortly before the election regarding civil service and political employees. We've seen, you know, as of the last time I checked, his general service administrator would not sign the letter that would turn over resources to the transition team. He's just fired the defense secretary, Mark Esper, what else do you think is coming? <laughs> so, you know, I've been telling folks who will listen to fasten their seatbelts, because you're right, this is an administration that has not honored the practices of traditional government institutions. You referenced the executive order on uh, creating Schedule F, which would convert career employees with a policy advising role into basically non-career, which means they could be hired outside the competitive process I described. You could see acceleration of regulations across the board, those deeply inconsistent with a Biden-Harris administration. If we can continue under the guise of the current emergency, awarding contracts without going through the competitive process, um, that's a clear danger. Have you heard anything about, um, I don't know, for lack of a better word, Trump sort of trying to put in his own deep state to thwart the Biden agenda? Have you heard anything about that actually happening or that fear expressed? Yes. Well, I think that's sort of the fear behind Schedule F. It's sort of institutionalized burrowing, right? You could appoint individuals without having to go through the competitive process to positions and have them in a policy-making role. So I, I do think that's a, a distinct concern. 
Robert Shea is not the only person who has this stuff on his mind right now. The other day, I spoke with Ron Sanders. He was director of civilian personnel for the Department of Defense, with responsibility for about a million federal workers. And later, he was chief of human resources for the intelligence community after 9-11. Most recently, Sanders was chairman of the Federal Salary Council. It is um, among the most obscure positions in the federal government. Basically, it's a group tasked with determining competitive pay rates for federal workers so that good people will want to work in government. Obviously, in New York, federal salaries are higher than they would be in Kansas City. Federal salaries there are adjusted to address that. And it's the Federal Salary Council that oversees that effort. And then we uh, make recommendations regarding how much of the federal government's salary should go to locality pay adjustments and where those adjustments should occur. I told you this was an obscure position. At the end of October, Sanders was yanked out of obscurity when he resigned from the Federal Salary Council. His resignation letter was leaked. It was a barn burner. As Sanders' letter explains, he quit his job in response to Executive Order Number 13957, creating Schedule F in the accepted service. That's the one we've been talking about that makes changes to the civil service, the enormous body of federal employees who do a lot of the daily work of government, tax auditors, statisticians, meteorologists. Although the order is written in dry, bureaucratic language, Sanders immediately grasped its radical intent. Quote, It is clear that its stated purpose notwithstanding, the executive order is nothing more than a smokescreen for what is clearly an attempt to require the political loyalty of those who advise the president, or, failing that, to enable their removal with little, if any, due process. I believe it has the potential to politicize the civil service, and I think that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Ronald Sanders is a lifelong Republican. During our Zoom call, I noticed behind his desk a full-sized American flag on a pole, a world map, and framed awards, including the rarely given National Intelligence Distinguished Service Medal. Sanders explained to me that Trump's executive order creates a new class of federal worker known as Schedule F, unlike other categories of workers who are hired on merit. With Schedule F workers, other things may be considered. Political beliefs, personal connections, That's why we keep talking about Schedule F. When it's implemented, this could cover anyone, quote, employed in positions of a confidential, policy-determining, policy-making, or policy-advocating character. Sanders was appalled. So I resigned from my very obscure position. And Ilya, I will again state for the record, my resignation was intended to be private. It was not intended to uh, go viral and uh, and become a cause to liberate. It's uh, frankly, it's not a bad thing that it has, because I think it helps for people to understand the role of the career civil service. The White House characterized the executive order as an effort to address poor performance and add flexibility in hiring. We asked them to respond to Sanders' view that the order is about installing loyalists. They did not give an answer. Can you help me think through what the negative consequences could potentially be of an order like this? Like, what is the negative consequence for taxpayers, for democracy, for people who vote every four years? So I'll give you a, for taxpayers who ought to be concerned about this. Let's say I'm a procurement person. 
and the Department of Defense is going to let a multi-billion dollar weapon system contract. And I am the professional procurement person who is managing the process, managing the program, managing the bids, and, re- and most importantly, reviewing and analyzing those bids. And I come up with a recommendation, and maybe more importantly, I say some of these companies have problems and they should not be allowed to bid. And I take that privately. I take that to my political superiors and say, here's what I've got. And those political superiors say, sorry, don't want to hear it. We're going to hire one of those contractors that you say we shouldn't. And we don't want you to say anything about it. And you don't want those career civil servants worrying, should I not say this? Because if I do, I, I may lose my job or I may be banished. You don't want them worrying about that. You want them to be, get, to be able to give that unexpurgated professional opinion to the policymaker. And then it's up to the policymaker to make the decision and, frankly, be held accountable for it. It's, it really is, in some sense, the career civil service that stands between us and like a pay-to-play form of government. Yes, um, I, I do know, and I'm not going to reveal any of my sources and methods, but I do know that the folks at the Office of Personnel Management, particularly the career folks, the real experts here, had nothing to do with this executive order. It came as a surprise, as much as a surprise to them as it did to me. The Office of Personnel Management did not comment for this story. And I'm really going to make your head hurt, Ilya. Somebody will ask, well, won't it be obvious? Won't we be able to track down those people appointed under Schedule F in a, uh, a new administration? And the answer is yes, but there is also a federal prohibited personnel practice that says that an individual's retention as a civil servant should not be based on their political persuasion. So if I'm appointed under Schedule F between now and January 19th, and somebody later tries to remove me, that's not as easy as it sounds because I could claim, perhaps legitimately, I'm being removed because of my political beliefs, not my policy expertise. So under one scenario, you could find people embedding themselves the technical term. Actually, it's not a technical term, it's a euphemism, but the term is called burrowing in. A longstanding practice of administrations of both parties to try to put people who were political appointees in their administration into the career civil service. So that's one possibility. The other, if the administration continues, is to begin rooting out those people who spoke truth to power who they don't agree with and removing them because the other thing that Schedule F does is once a a person is placed under that authority, they can be removed more or less at will with very little due process. So basically, Schedule F takes a little bit from the political appointee side and a little bit from the career civil service side and creates a position, creates a situation where the administration in power can both reward loyalists and harm people who are perceived to be um, disloyal or opponents or inconvenient. I think that's exactly right. It's a very sharp two-edged sword.
Trump Inc. wants to hear from you. If you know of any unusual hirings, firings, or other personnel moves in the federal government, we're collecting stories now. So please, consider sending us a tip if you know something. You can share documents or information securely. Just go to our website, trumpincpodcast.org. We will respect your confidentiality. This episode was produced by Katherine Sullivan and Meg Kramer. Our editor is Nick Varshaver. Sound design and original scoring by Jared Paul. Our theme and additional music is by Hannes Brown. Matt Collette is the executive producer of Trump, Inc. Emily Botin is WNYC's vice president for original programming. Steve Engelberg is editor-in-chief of ProPublica. I'm Andrea Bernstein. I'm Ilya Meritz. Thanks for listening.